Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Moods and Modes is presented in partnership with Osiris Media and made possible by members of our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm perhaps best known as a guitar player. I'm also a writer, photographer, music educator, authenticity appreciator, and somebody who occasionally gets told to shut up and play my guitar. This podcast will largely focus on music and the human stories behind the sounds that make life so meaningful. And it may take us to some unexpected territory as well. So thank you for joining me. And now it's time for some moods and modes. nice driving music here it's like we're all in a car together and now it's time to pull over moods and modes episode 42 this is alex and i am actually on the road figuratively coming to you from tokyo japan konnichiwa so i may sound a little different i brought as much stuff as i could with me however the microphone does not have its usual stand you may hear occasional rattling of the cable that'll sound like this and there may be other hints that this particular portion of the episode is being done guerrilla style. But the music you are hearing is a little different for us. It's more focused on songs and songwriting, although there are some very tasty guitar moments and some great tones. And the artist is Chris Shiflett. If you don't know the name Chris Shiflett, you'd certainly know the band he is most associated with, which sounds like this. So if you listen closely to Foo Fighters tracks prior to the mid and late 2000s, you'll often hear these lead lines that are taking place underneath Dave Grohl's riffing and vocals. They're very important, even though they're not up front. That is Chris. Other songs make great use of his vocals right alongside Dave. So we're not going to focus too much on Foo Fighters today for several reasons. One, Chris is his own musician and has a sound quite different from his high-profile association. Now, I do understand a little bit about what it's like to be a musician who is creative in his or her own right and does their own albums and sometimes has to shift the focus away from a project they're associated with, which has a lot of visibility. However, I can only imagine what that's like when you're a bandmate of somebody like Dave Grohl, who, let's face it, is a cultural institution, a pop culture institution, and uh, your band is one of the only rock acts left that sells out stadiums and arenas. 
So Chris has his own album, Lost at Sea. It came out this year. You heard a little bit of it up front. You'll hear some more throughout the episode. And it's definitely rock, although you may detect a pinch or a dash of country. And that won't be a coincidence. Uh, we will talk about that in the episode. And Chris is quite knowledgeable about country, although he's knowledgeable about lots of different types of music, including Shred. And it's definitely not a Shred album. But Chris is somebody that knows his shred guitar to the point where he has a podcast called Shred with Shifty, and it's excellent. It's put out by our friends in Premier Guitar, so thanks to them and PG head Jason Shadrick for um, bringing Chris's podcast to our attention and him to us. And it's a new podcast. There's just a few so far, but he's got some great ones coming up, which we talk about. And listeners to this podcast might be interested in the fact that his debut episode is a breakdown of a very cool solo on a Rush song, Limelight, done with the help of none other than Alex Lifeson himself. All right, I'm a little jealous. So again, we focus more on the new podcast, Shred with Shifty, and the new album, Lost at Sea. Although there are a couple cool Foo Fighters stories that come up. I didn't push for those. They came up naturally. One thing we did not talk about was the great Taylor Hawkins, the Foo Fighters drummer who sadly left us recently. It just would have dominated much of the talk. And there's just not much that can be said that hasn't been said in the press already. So what we have in this episode is two guys meeting for the very first time, getting to know each other, and it's as though we're at a music festival and we bumped into each other, we pulled up a couple chairs, grabbed coffee, and just chatted and had a great chat. It's a hang that you all get to sit in on. And I'm sure you're going to find that Chris is as much of a guitar aficionado, guitar player enthusiast, and pedal junkie as myself and so many members of our audience. And there really isn't much more to say. Uh, Sometimes these intros run longer because the guest is somebody that I've been listening to and is a direct influence for many years or somebody that I have musical and personal history with. And there's more to say up front. In the case of the Foo Fighters, I've always liked the band. I like the songs, but I can't say they were a direct influence comparable to somebody like a recent guest such as Eric Johnson. And I admit, I was not aware of Chris's music outside of the Foo Fighters, but I'm glad I know about it now. Anyway, I really enjoyed this, and please help me give a big welcome to new friend, fellow guitar nerd, solo artist, Foo Fighter for more than a decade, host of the premier guitar podcast, Shred with Shifty, Chris Shiflett. Hey, hey. Greetings. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. I just had a classic LA morning where um, the same drive that you do every day of your life that takes like 20 minutes took like an hour and a half. So I literally got here with like 30 seconds to spare. (laughs) Oh, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Just barely pulled it off. That's basically LA these days. I was there recently and you're just going to devote a big chunk of your life to being on the highway. That's why people love podcasts, man. Yeah. That's what that's what we're doing. Yeah. Providing them entertainment. Yeah, yeah. And you're a podcast guy now. Yeah, you know, well, it's interesting. You know, I've I've had a I've done a podcast called Walking the Floor for like the last 10 years or so, but this new one, Shred with Shifty, is a whole adds a, a video element to it that's like a whole mm. new, whole new different thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, not just one, but two podcasts. Two podcasts. Good job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. What made you want to get into podcasting? I mean, the original reason really was I was putting out a record, and um, one of the guys that that uh, my friend Joe, who had, had a label at the time called Side One Dummy, that was putting out my record, um, said, "Hey, man, you should make a podcast because you could use it to promote your release." And I was like, "Oh, that's a cool idea." And then, then I was just kind of like, "Well, what?" what how do you make a podcast like what would it what would it be and then uh, we um and then you know i just i just kind of figured it out yeah and it was and then i and then i just kept doing it and you know how it is you just the more you do it the a the more comfortable you get doing it like i'd never interviewed people before um 
I had no experience. I, I used to really stress about the more and more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And I, and I, I kind of realized like, you know, when do you get a chance to talk to all these people whose music yeah. you, you dig? Yeah, you've talked to some interesting people. I, I saw you did something with Alex Lifeson recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this new show, this guitar show is, is, is different and it's intentionally not like um, genre focused at all. Like where it's it's kind of all over the shop. So yeah, I mean, as a guitar player, this like a big part of it. Not every single guest, but a big part of it is like try to go talk to your own guitar heroes and 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 just you know because like you you know how it is in music. Like you, if you're lucky to go make records and and go out and tour and stuff, you wind up meeting all these people whose music influenced you heavily but you don't often sit down with them and talk like re right. get into the weeds about stuff it'll be like a quick oh my god nice to meet you and you take a picture and you right. know that's it you know what i mean so to be able to really drill down on some of this stuff is so fun you know yeah yeah i happen to get a preview of some of your upcoming guests Oh, cool. On the new show. We're we're just audio, by the way. Oh, okay. I, I can't even deal with video. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let me tell you something. It's an editing nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I do a lot of edits on this podcast just for audio. Yeah. Because if, if we talk about a certain piece of music, maybe I'll play a sample. Yeah. Or if you know, we're comparing a song to another, I like to... Do, uh, drop that in there but that's hard enough yeah just just with audio but yeah video unless you know somebody gets me a staff <laughs> it's not gonna happen exactly well jason's my staff <laughs> yeah and he's awesome and yeah, he's really yeah. good yeah he's 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 has to deal with my nitpicking edit tweaks you know all day yeah. long yeah all right and he may have been the one to clue me in on some of this, but I understand uh, you have an upcoming guest, uh, Niall Rogers. Yeah. That's freaking cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like that one was crazy. I didn't, I couldn't believe that we landed him as a guest. You know, he was one of the, one of the first people I actually interviewed for this thing. And he's so cool. And you just don't like, I just, I guess I never really thought about how much his guitar playing has impacted us all because he's just played on such a range of like mega hits, you know, songs that you just, you know, you just, even if you don't realize it, you know, his guitar playing. Well, like let's dance by David Bowie. Sure. Wouldn't, sure. Would not be what it is. Without yeah. A hundred percent. And that's a really good example. He actually broke down some of those chords in that, but um, I think it's true of most of his stuff. You think it's one thing, and you when you see because we we the song we really focused on was um uh, I'm coming out. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's just I guitar in that great guitar and all his stuff. It's like you think it's just you know some simple kind of you know chord inversions yeah. up the neck, but he's really doing these these just totally cool inversions most of the time that that you wouldn't expect that aren't necessary. You know, because like a lot of that stuff's kind of in the soup in the mix, and it's adding something that you're feeling, but you're not necessarily register yeah and i remember hearing le freak when i was a little kid i just loved it never outgrew it yeah but then you know when you get to junior high and high school there's you know the attitudes about you know what's good what music it's okay to listen to and you know disco is bad right and right, right right yeah yeah it's funny i i think that's i think that's like our generation you know what i mean like, i don't see my kids having that the, that same kind of baggage with with from one genre to another but yeah when we were i mean i don't know how old you are i, th I think we're probably around the same about age, the but, same age yeah like um, when we were growing up like you if you were metal you fucking hated right. duran duran or what you know what i mean exactly. like it's like you could not appreciate what was going on in one of those that's songs. right and then you get a little older and you let that shit go and, and you and you realize how great so much of the stuff was and and you know we all kind of have a lot of like guilty pleasures back in the day too that you wouldn't necessarily say out loud, you know. Yeah. Well, also they had. I've I heard I saw Niall interviewed and, yeah, they had been through that too. Like they got caught up in the whole. And this was, yeah, when we were really young. But the whole like post disco period, like the end of the seventies, right? Yeah. The backlash I think was starting right around the time of uh, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's when he like kind of he shifted into being like the mega producer at that point for David Bowie, for Madonna and all that stuff. Yeah, Chic was like classified they as disco. Yeah. They were sort of caught up in this 
saying, and I remember, well, yeah, once I discovered more about Nile Rodgers and his musicians, I realized, well, okay, you know what? I, I was right to like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. a reason. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting thing with the guitar playing side of it, because, you know, as a rock player, like I never played in an R&B band or a funk band or a pop group or and you know and, and that like the style the style of a guitar playing that he's known for and to me i always when if i was doing you know trying to do a like oh like a funk thing or something i always thought about it more just the right hand and i never really thought about what the left hand was doing just playing like bar chords and stuff and going and maybe throwing a wand or something like that but when you see i mean it, it, obviously the right hand's a big part of it but the what he's doing with his chord shapes is just so cool. So much more there than meets the eye. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. he's doing. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't wait to check that out. And you have some country guys as well. Yeah, um, Brad Paisley. Yeah. Brad Paisley, <laughs> star. Yeah, who can play his ass off? Oh my god, he is such a ripper. I mean, you know, that's like all the good guitar playing. Well, there was always great guitar playing in country music, but when rock music kind of made lead guitar playing. It went out of fashion in rock music. It's like country music just took took up the baton and ran with it, you know. Um, yeah, and I noticed that on the, um, New Year's, I watched some of the Nashville country special, and uh, I think I even tweeted like just a commentary that every sideman <laughs> in one of these bands is killing it. Yes. Yes. Like it doesn't matter if it's like Brooks and Dunn. Oh or, yeah, uh, yeah. There's no slouches in in Nashville. Nobody gets to the top of that heap without really knowing yeah. how to play. I uh, Brent Ma Mason. Brent Mason. Well. Yeah. yeah. What a monster. Been a, a top session cat out in Nashville for a long time. Played on all the big Alan Jackson, Travis Tritt. You know what? All that the the monster hits in the '90s and and 2000s and stuff. But um, and also John Osborne. Uh, from Brothers Osborne, who if if you haven't checked him out, man, that dude is a beast, beast. Yeah, of a player. I don't know him. Yeah, yeah, check him out. He he's uh his and all, all of their lessons were great or uh, interviews and uh, and Charlie Starr from Blackberry Smoke, who I wouldn't say is a he's not you know Blackberry Smoke's more of like a rock band, but he's got a lot of country influence in there too, and he was fantastic. And Lin Lindsay L actually in one of my next episodes, Lindsay L, um, who's she more of like a strat you know, kind of blues influence player, but she's kind of in the country lane too. I don't even know quite how you'd classify her. Yeah, no, it's country. It's always been a part of your thing. I think I, I caught an interview and you were talking about the connection between like honky tonk and uh, punk rock. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was always a thing. It wasn't what I grew up with, you know, um, at all. But, uh, but I got into it. Um, I sort of got into it mostly through alt country, you know, when, when that first, when I first heard that phrase in like the mid nineties or whatever, you know, alt country, yeah, kind of, kind of got into that. And, and, uh, and then that led me back to all the classic stuff. Alt country. What are some good examples of that? Steve Earle, right? Steve Earle. Yeah. You know, uh, old 97s, uncle Tupelo, Sunvolt, you know, all just a whiskey town, all the yeah. bands. Whiskey town was with Ryan Adams. Mm -hmm. So I knew a little bit about this. It's not like my main wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 And a lot of those bands were equal parts, sort of like, you know, country roots, music, classic country, and also like a lot of stones and a lot of rock and roll in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, ch I checked out some of your solo stuff and I definitely hear the country connection. Oh, right on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially in you know songs like um, "Dead and Gone." Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's a huge influence. I like incorporating that into a lot of my music and kind of, you know, but it's never like pure country. It's always kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 Maybe a little too, little too much gain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great video in that, that song. Too. Oh, sweet. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's cool, man. My label over in the UK hooked me up with the dude that cut that cut that video and cut a another lyric video for um, the first song that I put out off this this current record that I'm putting tunes out for um, called Blacktop White Lines. And uh, and the dude's so cool, and he's this English cat who's in a. I think he's a oh God. What's the band that he's in? He's in like a like a heavy metal band over there. But he cut these videos together that just nailed it. I would send him like kind of like vibe references, you know, just pictures and stuff, you know. I mean, I'm kind of into like surfing and this and that, whatever. And he would just kind of use that all and weave it all through through the videos and just nailed it. It's great. Yeah, there was another one where everything was a postcard. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that was probably Blacktop White Lines. Or no, no, that was uh, the long, long year born and raised. Yes. Yeah, that was another dude down in South America cut those uh, those lyric videos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really, really clever. Uh, what's the um, guitar effect you're using in, in Dead and Gone? You suddenly go to this sort of uh, pitch shift or yes. harmonizer thing. That is a micropog. And I had that on, yeah, I had that on for the whole song. So if you if the, if the guitars in that song, it's it's me playing a telly through a micropog, kind of gained up, and um, and then it's uh, Tom Bukovac is playing the other electric guitar. There's like one that's like got like a tremolo or a vibe thing and wah wah wah, kind of that's kind of swampy. And then you've got um, Charlie Warsham playing acoustic guitar and like maybe he might be playing some dobro in there somewhere. I think. Um, so there's all that stuff. And like with that micropog, it's pretty gained up. And like, you know, you really can't play chords with that thing. It's more of like a single note effect. I think I have a similar thing. Oh, okay, nice. I'm yeah. Grab it. I was playing chords through the whole thing, so it just sounds like it's just fucked up, you know? This or that yes. small so version of that? it's the small version of that. That's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm using this all the time now for instrumental music. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I love it. it. Kind of makes your, your guitar sound like a keyboard, you know? It's, it's cool. Yeah, it changes the dynamic and the attack. Um, it almost, uh, yeah, almost get, can, gives it an organ sound. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on which, you know, this this has like eight different options of settings, and then you change the settings throughout, and it's just, yeah, it's just pretty unlimited. Yeah, I got the um. I've never messed with that one. I've, I've I should get one of those because I know it's got a lot more you can do on it. I've got the the one called the Micropog that's like half that size, and then I even got I don't know what the next one. They might also be called the Micropog, but then I got one for my touring. Um, pedal board that's even smaller than that that i think just has a couple of knobs on it yeah it's really whittles it down yeah this is one of those situations i just had a friend a guitar tech friend that had a friend that didn't acquired it didn't know what to do with that air can you put this to use you know it's funny yeah that that pedal i love that pedal um and it it i took it out for the first because i recorded the basic tracks for my record like in three different trips out to Nashville. And I would just throw, like, I would just go to my studio and throw a bunch of pedals in a, in a, you know, in a box and just take them with me and, and play whatever amps were out there. My, the dude that produced my record is, is my friend, Jaron Johnston, who's, uh, who plays guitar and sings in that band Cadillac three. And so he's got a bunch of guitars and amps and so he'd just bring some different amps down to the session. And I wasn't really, thinking about that too much but the so the we recorded that song in the first trip out there and then the next trip out there was a few months later i didn't really remember even what i had brought out the first time so again i just went to my studio and threw a bunch of shit in a box and i got out there he's like where's the micropog i was like huh <laughs> like i didn't bring it he was like what do you mean you didn't bring it it's like the whole song on that other one. we could have used it again that's the key yeah, yeah it's essential yeah so nashville you said there's a studio in nashville so are you based there part of the time? No, I'm, I, I live in LA. There? No. Yeah. I yeah, just, that's what I, I thought I just, you know, for, if you're making music with, with that's country flavored, it's, it's just, 
great. Where else like, to I go? Love, right. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's kind of the best place in the world to go. So I made I made a record out there called West Coast Town um, back in, uh, I think, 2016. And then I made the one after that, Hard Lessons, out there as well. And, and, um, and I just got hooked, man. I love it. I love, uh, I love, I just, I, you know, these days I have a bunch of friends, you know, that know a bunch of the, the musicians out there and, um, and it's just, it's just great, man. I always say it's great to be the weak link in the room. Everybody, all those cats out there are just so good and they bring so much to it. It's really the opposite. I think of the stereotype, you know, it's like the, the stereotype is, recording with session musicians would somehow be sterile and maybe in certain contexts it is i don't know but it's not on my records man it's like those guys all of them just bring it and uh and and that's that's the part of it that whole thing um it becomes very collaborative in that sense you know between the whoever's playing in the room and whatever i brought to the session and then whoever's producing it and whoever's engineering it and it's this whole thing and it just elevates you know it elevates your ideas pat Messini said the same thing almost but the way he put it was yeah try to be the worst person in your band yes 100 <laughs> percent. yeah that's always the goal you know? yeah yeah i always feel like i come out of those sessions and i've just learned a bunch you know mm -hmm. and that's great yeah and also what i found in nashville it just i was just just there of few months ago and people are so welcoming and i just find the musicians especially there's just right there's no judgment there's no stay in your lane type of thing you know You're right yeah 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 totally no it's it's a it's a great place just a great community of players out there yeah so i know you have these nashville connections i took out a couple guitars that are from nashville that I have. Um, this one I got last year uh, at Carter's. Oh, I love Carter's. Yeah, me too. That's like my favorite guitar store in the whole world, I think. Yeah, I, I try to, I've always wanted to have an acoustic guitar from there and uh, stopped there on a tour date last year and I was just determined. I'm, I'm going to find one. And I wasn't crazy about most of the full-size guitars but i tried this one you know it's a b25 from 1964 and i just thought you know this this uh stands up to uh it stands up to all the the bigger guitars i tell you what man i'm a i'm a i'm short you know i'm only about five seven and i love small guitars i love parlor guitars and um oh, what's the other i forget the other name that's not quite the full you know, dreadnought size, but like one step concert. I think they mm -hmm. might remember that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a smaller guitar and, uh, and I gotta say, I mean, we're doing this over Riverside, so maybe I'm getting this wrong, but that looks like, what is that? Like a cherry burst kind of Yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Look at that. So cool. And it, I mean, the quality is as good as any guitar. Sometimes when I'm on tour, I try to pick up a cheap acoustic just to, keep my chops up and i have like cheap pawn shop acoustics at friends houses <laughs> all over the world yeah 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 but this time i thought okay all right this is, i'm gonna buy a really good one i'm gonna drop it off as soon as i can uh but yeah it's, it's a it's a really great one that looks like a good hotel room slash backstage acoustic perfect size absolutely on you know, a guitar like that, it inspires ideas because the sound is so good. Oh, yeah. All right, so this one right here is from Groon. Oh, yeah. And um, this is one I was uh, just telling Jason ab about it. It was uh, one that I, I thought it was a $25,000 guitar, and they were missing a decimal point <laughs> on the price tag. <laughs> and then uh, the guy there told me, nope, 2009. <laughs> Wow. No caster relic from the custom shop. <laughs> Dude, I, that is so wild. I bought, what What year is that supposed to be? It's, it's supposed to be uh, 51. Dude, I bought almost the exact same guitar from from Groon years ago in Nashville. And it, it's a Fender custom shop relic, supposed to be a 53. 
like whatever that is, a black guard yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, and at the time, they had a 52, a real 52 in there, and I AB'd them, and I'm not kidding. And I love old vintage guitars, but the one that I bought sounded freaking better. Yeah, yeah. Felt better, too. Same thing. Um, and it's my favorite. It's my number one guitar. I mean, it's my, it is my number one telly. And it's. I wish I had it here. I don't have it here. Where is it? I'm at the Foo Fighter Studio right now. Yeah, it's at my. Uh, I have a little studio a little closer to where I live. All right, it's time for our quick midway break, as we are known to do, and just a couple quick announcements. There is going to be a live taping of Moods and Modes in New York City at the Cutting Room on October 19th. Uh, the Alex Holmick Trio will be performing. And we'll be kicking it off with a conversation to be taped for an episode of the podcast. And it'll also include our good friend Adam Dubin, filmmaker of such videos as Nothing Else Matters, Fight for Your Right to Party, and um, much more. And we'll be warming up for that show a few days earlier in Elmsford, New York, at uh, Music at the Deli. We played there a few months ago. It was a great time. So uh, one more show to announce in November, I will be doing a double header with Pact featuring Percy Jones and the Jane Getter Premonition. That's November 26th. That is also at the Cutting Room. So it's mostly New York area shows for now, but next year there are a whole bunch of touring dates being worked on for North America and Europe. You'll be hearing about those soon. Now let's get back to my conversation with Chris Shiflett. Yeah, the, I did the same thing. I went down the row. It was better than the $15,000 guitar. It was better than the $20,000 one. Yeah, they kept getting more. And that's why I thought this was, all right, next is the $25,000. Yeah, yeah. And it made sense. This should be the $25,000 one. Another one, like $27,000. I'm like, okay, this one's really good. But still, I thought, yeah, it measured up to to the mall and uh that's i've had that happen a few times actually. you can't go wrong with the classic telly it's like one of the ultimate uh workhorse guitars yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. and it was it was very funny because i was there uh my trio i have an instrumental trio sure and we were supporting rodrigo y gabriella oh wow they were at the ryman which as you know is right up the street from Grun. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Rodrigo and I uh, did a tour of the Gibson Custom Shop while they were still doing tours, and um, he was determined to get a guitar in Nashville. And he'd, he'd, he'd never had a Les Paul before. Right, right. He could afford it now, um, not being a kid anymore, and the band was doing well. So he bought this great custom Les Paul. I came back from Groon Guitars, and he asked me if I saw any guitar like that. I said well there was this one and yeah I'm kind of, and he's like you have to buy that guitar man <laughs> and we'll always think of this day we both bought guitars in Nashville. and he interrupted their sound check made an announcement in the mic I'll be right back um <laughs> 10 minute break <laughs> we we walk back to Groom Guitars they're closing they're already cl closed the guy looks at me like like this points to his wrist I pull out my wallet and the credit card. I'm like, <laughs> opens the door right up. Yeah, you came for the twenty thousand one, right? No, he knew because I, I I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you guys, I think I think somebody mispriced this guitar, <laughs> and no, it turned out to be a relic. So that's very cool that you have uh, almost the same one from the same type. I we were just out in Nashville recently for Bonnaroo, and um and I went and picked up um, a guitar from Gibson that I had ordered a little while ago that is so great. Um, I got one of those Carina Explorer reissues. Oh, yeah. I've seen those. You ever get like a, you know, it's it's funny with brand new guitars. Like, it's not often that I get a brand new one that I'm just like, this is perfect. Don't change anything. You know? I'll usually tweak it in some way. And man, I brought I brought that thing to soundcheck the next day and was just like, don't change anything on this. It's perfect. They got it right. They got it right. Sounds amazing. Feels amazing. The neck's amazing. 
It's just like the way, the balance of it, the weight of it. It's just, man, the, the, it's so funny to think of the Explorer as, um, was such a, like a fail when it came out. Cause I mean, to me, it's, it's one of the all time greatest guitar designs period. Oh yeah. It was a complete failure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did not sell. Yeah. Talk about being ahead of its time. I know, I know. It took the rockers to adopt it and uh, and make it a thing. But God damn, man, it's a uh, it's a beautiful guitar. I have a couple Explorers, and um, I just there's just something about the way they hang on you that just it's just perfect. Yeah, I I was at the factory, but the I was at the Gibson Garage uh, a few months ago uh, with my friend Dave Hill. He's a comedian. And, um, see, I hadn't met, uh, Cesar before. It was so cool. And I'm so glad he's taken over the, the company, but, uh, yeah, he took us into the vault. Oh yeah. And I went there. Yeah. I went there. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. And he's got big Ed in there. Which yes. I think it's the first Explorer. Yeah. It's, it's that it's a real Karina that, and the story behind that is just nuts. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy, but uh, who's the right, guitar player? It's named player? after someone named Ed. It's named after the guy that bought it new, who was a blues guitar player in like Cincinnati or something. Yes, and I guess the guy's right. brother bought a Karina V at the same time. Yes, like they got them exactly at the same right. time. And then, and when, um, and when the dude saw him playing in a bar in like the early eighties and offered to buy it, um, mm-hmm. I think, the deal was okay i'll sell it to you but you also have to buy my brother's v like can you imagine <laughs> can you imagine finding that deal out there now oh my oh, yeah. god w- yeah. wouldn't happen yeah would not happen like oh twist my arm i gotta buy the v too okay <laughs> yeah yeah so big ed is now worth a million dollars and also in the vault is this guitar uh gemini which is made from the same batch as greeny Oh. So, yeah, it's like the sister guitar to Greeny. Oh, wow. And Cesar is so cool, man. He wants these guitars to be played. So he takes them out. Yeah. And like hands it to us. You know, you take this, you take this. So da- um, Dave had Big Ed. I had Gemini, which is worth $2 million. And I was telling Dave, ha ha, <laughs> your guitar is only worth a million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bargain bin. <laughs> and don't you get nervous playing those guitars? I'm always like, dude, I'm wearing a belt. I'm going to scratch this thing. It's like holding the Declaration of Independence. Or, right. You know, the <laughs> right. Yeah. whole constitution, right? It's yeah. Like, okay. You really, you know, totally. you know, yeah, you're so careful. But yeah. And then we all walk with the guitars. We walk over to the sofa where he's got these amps. And uh, we had this really fun jam. All of us, like there were four of us total Cesar, me, uh, Dave Hill, and uh, another comic friend of Dave's that plays guitar. And we just got into this crazy jam. It's all uh, filmed. Oh, nice. I remember feeling that, you know, and Gemini's a 59 Les Paul. I was playing vibrato that I've never played before. Really? And it was like, yeah, it was like uh, Clapton on Disraeli Gears or Leslie West on the early mountain stuff, like this yeah. special vibrato that just doesn't happen. And um, it was, yeah, it was very in- intense. Oh, that's uh, cool. And I was very happy to hear they're going to clone that guitar. They're actually working ah. on doing clones of Gemini. I actually played one of the early clones. They had one. They had a prototype, and it's really in the same league. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing a good job over there for sure. Yeah, it's exciting. It's uh, so the Explorer. The Explorer is. Uh, how long have you played Explorers? Is that well, a recent thing or no? When when I joined Foo Fighters, you know, I didn't have. Um, I really only had one functional guitar, and uh, <laughs> Amazing. one of the, one of the first things we did was dave was like you know you need some you need more guitars for tour you know we're going on tour gotta have some backups and so we went guitar shopping and he bought me a white explorer um at voltage i don't know if you ever went to voltage right off of sunset there in hollywood i haven't been to that one it was well, long gone now but it was oh. like you know it was it was such a great moment because i've been going into that store since i was a teenager and just 
you know, looking at the guitars, but I never had any money to buy anything. You just go in there and walk through and then they tell you to beat it. Um, <laughs> you know, we've all had that yeah. experience. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I knew he played, I knew that Dave played an explorer. Um, so I picked one up that, that they had and I go, Oh, should I get this? He was like, totally. I was like, Oh, for real? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. And, um, I'd never owned one before and I just fell in love with that. Just played it all the time for a long time. I've, I've, um, it's funny with guitars, you know, like you, you buy guitars over the years and you go through a phase for a couple of tours where you play them a lot and then you put it away and you get something else and you almost like forget that it's there. And like 10 years go by and you go like uncover it and you're like, oh my God, I forgot how much I love this thing. So I've been, been kind of going through that with that guitar. Like it's worked it back into the, into the touring rig. I love rediscovering your own guitars. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I just love them. I just, I've always, uh, I've always dug them, whether it's like the, you know, sort of like Skinnerd um, mm -hmm. imagery or like, of course, like, you know, whoever, like uh, Matthias Jabs or somebody, you know, I just the Exactly. The, yeah. I was yeah. Ju just about to say like that. Yeah. That's the image that comes to mind for me. Yeah. By the way, I reached out to their publicist and, um, and I, I think at some point I'm, he got back to me recently and said, Hey, Matthias will do your show. So we haven't locked down a date, but that would be one that I'd be very, very excited to, to see happen. Oh, that would be awesome. I think it's funny. I don't know what your take on this is, but to me, Matthias Jabs is a guy like obviously well-known and was in Scorpions at their sort of commercial peak through all those big moments of the eighties. But I think because he came after Uli and Michael Schenker, he maybe doesn't get like the cr credit he deserves or something like you go. I've, I've said that really. In, yeah. In, 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 in oh, so many words. Because you yeah. go back and listen to like blackout and some of those records that he played on and he's just ripping. It's so good. Ripping. And they're And it's not just like athletic bullshit. It's like, it's playing to the song and bringing an energy to it that wasn't there. You know, it's great. I love it. Yeah. It fits the song. Uh, the tone is just on fire. I think uh, you're exactly right. Part of it is he had to follow Uli and Michael Shanker, you know, who are these giants. But also, it was that time period. You know, it was the, the first part of the 80s. Yeah. So you've got Van Halen, and then very soon you've got Ingvay. Yeah, Randy Rhodes was in there. Randy yeah. Rhodes, of course, one of my biggest influences. Same, same. Satriani and Vi. Right. And, um, I mean, not to mention all the other John Sykes, Vivian Campbell, Adrian Van. I mean, there's just one, there's, it was a, it was a crowded era. It's just, that's one of the things. It was crowded. Yeah. I want to interview some of those cats from that era because I'm, I'm really curious to hear, like, you know, you've got rock guitar playing was, was doing its thing and evolving. And then, and then Eddie Van Halen comes along and, and it was like, to me, changed or to most people, I think changed changed everything. And but then all of a sudden, you had to be. Yeah, I mean, he's best known for eruption, disruption. Right, right. You know, but the but word, then like, yeah. how did all the these other motherfuckers that were around catch up so fast? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it just seemed yeah. like then all of a sudden there were all these cats that could play lightning fast, super precise, really like detailed, crazy. You know, just in the course of a few years, you know, like how does that happen? Because you got to figure most of those folks were around playing guitar like was everybody on that path and eddie just got there first or did they did eddie come out and they just went oh shit we got to go back to the drawing board you know yeah it's interesting um i did a recent episode of my podcast with jim campolongo i don't know if you know who that is um he is a great telecaster player uh campolongo like i totally recommend you check him out I'm gonna check it out. He was um he's got he's kind of best known for doing some work with Nora Jones and oh, okay. people like that. But he he's um he's got these great instrumental uh, albums and he was uh, we were talking about this and he was teaching guitar at the time and he already played. I mean he kind of already was on his path and he remembers hearing it and being knocked out by it and students bringing it in. But for, you know, people like th his generation, it, it was just something, it was just so next level. Yeah. It was like, okay, that's, you know, that's for him and, you know, players that are going to 
come up after him. And this is a guy, not that this guy didn't have chops. It was just a very different kind of chops. But yeah, Eddie just, he reinvented it. Well, it's, it's like it's like pro surfing or skateboarding or something where people are doing it one way and then the first pro surfer like does an air. And then now all of a sudden everybody has to, and then all this, all these people like, how could yeah. nobody ever did it before? Now everybody's doing it. You know, it's like, everybody's you know, it. yeah, it's yeah. wild. You, you, you even listen to like the first Quiet Riot album that, Randy Rhodes, you know, the first one that they did that mm-hmm. probably most people have never heard that whatever we are the ravers or something like that. Like I can't remember what it was called. Um his guitar playing is great by like mid-70s standards, but even by the next Quiet Riot record, which was just a couple years later, whenever it was 78 or something, you're hearing it's he's a different player. You know, it's yeah. it's the foundation of what he did on Blizzard and diary of a madman it's like it's there and it wasn't it yeah. wasn't there just a couple of when i you know i don't know what the time frame is exactly when that first and second one happened but i think 81 i think was well i mean i mean i'm talking about specifically the quiet riot records he did you know oh, yeah it was like yeah but you could tell i and i think eddie was already on the scene well by 78 of course the first van halen record had come out but yeah yeah he was also in la and in the same scene yeah, you know, his band I think was playing the same backyard parties. So right, yeah, he knew what was going on with Eddie. And, I'm sure, I'm sure. But he did his own thing with it. You know, he definitely made it more kind of neoclassical for whatever that that word means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even his shift with that is so different. Like you listen to like that, like those Quiet Riot records again. They're like it's like rock and roll. You know, it's not like all that minor key heavy neoclassical sounding stuff you know it's like you know it's like way more rock and roll than what he did with ozzy yeah and i think uh he was really into bowie too like I read that somewhere, and that one of the oh, yeah. why he had. That oh, he was rocking. I mean, he had Mick Paul. Ronson's haircut. You know, yeah, 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 wearing the vest and the Les Paul and the whole thing. Totally, he got yeah. the same hair exactly. Yeah, and I never thought about that because I never really heard Mick Ronson in his playing. But I guess when you sort of know that, you can hear certain things. Well, also, it's funny you don't hear it on the records, but if you check out live concert recordings. From back then, uh, he would stretch. Bowie would let the band stretch out. Oh, interesting! And there's way more solos, and you you can actually hear it. Yeah, that's cool. Like it's yeah, it, it, he's a b- big influence. But yeah, back to like that period of time. So I yeah, I think with so many you know giants of technique around, somebody like Matthias got a little bit overshadowed. Plus the preceding scorpions guitarist but yeah he i agree man he's (laughs) that stuff is so good and yeah when i i met him a few years ago and post when i posted a photo i said (laughs) this guy is so underappreciated i yeah i hope i hope we do it so that'll be great man i hope you get get a chance to chat with him it's interesting uh you the music you do on your own is kind of different than how you're associated and I kind of relate to that because I, I play with a lot of instrumental musicians. Sure. Um, I, I play with people like Stu Ham and Percy Jones from Brand X and my, and my own trio. It's such different music. I use different gear. But I'm because my my the gig I'm most associated with is heavy metal or thrash metal. You know, that's yeah, <laughs> that's how I get get categorized. But sure, sure. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like, well, it's it's a funny thing. I think you know, um, I've certainly had the um, had you know the experience many times over the years when I'm out doing solo shows. Of you know, of course, a significant portion, probably most, if not all, the people in the room are curious Foo Fighter fans. What's he doing? Core, right, the most hardcore element of your fan base are the people that are going to come. You know, and. Um, and within that, you know, most people are like, uh, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, don't have a lot of like musical baggage. I like this. I don't like that. So I think most people are just like, if, 
if it's a good time, it's a good time. And, you know, but you can definitely tell sometimes there'd be like, you know, somebody in a Foo Fighter t-shirt, like standing in the back, like, what's this motherfucker doing? (laughs) (laughs) Why is there a pedal steel up there? I don't want to hear that shit. You know what I mean? Um, So you get, you do get, you know, some of that too. Yeah. Yeah, And it's funny because, you know, just doing a little bit of research and seeing uh, categories assigned to your name. It's like punk rock. And then I, I check it out. I mean, no, it's way, your music is way too melodic to be punk rock. I mean, well, I mean, the, the punk rock world that I came up in, you know, when I, when I was in No Use for a Name, like in the 90s, um, was way more melodic than it was yeah. noisy. Production is yeah. really... Um, I, yeah, and that's really, and I always say this, that's sort of the dirty little secret of that era of punk rock. It was all kids that grew up listening to Metallica and Judas Priest and stuff, <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yeah. that eventually found their way to some Descendants records and then, you know, then just went that way. Um, so that was, I mean, you cannot understate the metal influence on like 90s punk rock. It's yeah, fucking yeah. there, you know, 100%. And then there's some obvious connections. Yeah, Misfits, obviously. Yeah, sure, sure. And GBH or whatever, yeah. you know. there's My friend uh, Dave Lombardo is now the drummer for Misfits. Right, yeah. So, um, but a lot of the folks in and around that scene were, were, were folks that had grown up listening to Heavy metal or hard rock or whatever, you know, it's all, it's, it's like from, from the distance, it's all the same shit, really. It's all loud guitar, bass drums, guitar music with a lot of gain and, you know, kind of fast and stuff. But yeah, like punk rock and, and alt rock. And it's a funny thing with, with anything that gets tagged country, you know, I feel like, cause I got a lot of friends in both worlds and in country music, like like all musicians tend to love everything, you know, or be at least open-minded to everything. They're like so I, open. Right. You know what I mean? The like most open musicians. I know. Sure. And, and I, I mean, and especially the older I get, the more I let go of any sort of like, you know, well, I can't like that because it's that other thing. Like, um, so even like musical forms that I don't necessarily like listen to a lot, I appreciate, you know, or I can hear something and enjoy it. And like, you know, most of my friends in country music love rock and roll and love, alt rock and stuff but there's still on the other side there's still a thing of like misunderstanding country as being one thing you know it's just like you know country music is hee-haw or toby keith or something when and and i that's the part that always kind of irks me a little bit like there's such a there's any genre whether it's blues or rock or country or jazz within that has this massive range right. of different There's sub sub genres. Yes. Yeah, you know what I mean? Um, and country is no different from any of the, any of that. So like, if you can't fucking appreciate the songwriting craft of somebody like Merle Haggard, then I don't know, man, you're just not, you're yeah. just not open to, you know, you're just, that's fucking crazy to me. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and certainly the musicianship too, but um, yeah. So who is kind of punk rock in a way? I think I saw a clip of you making a connection, right? Well, s- sure. I mean, like that's the that's the funny thing with especially the older era of country music, where it's sort of presented as this real buttoned up, you know, conservative, clean thing. And right. those with, those with guys, a ten were, gallon hat, right? And those guys were going hard. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were they were you know a lot of them. Um, yeah, we're living pretty rock and roll existences. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I understand you recently discovered fish. Is that something? <laughs> is this true? I heard, I heard a rumor. Uh, I'm not going to say where I heard it from. Okay. That's, that's my producer, Jason Shadrick <laughs> trying to fuck with me. I didn't name so, names. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he sent me, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I like the sort of like whatever you want to call jam band world. It's just not a, a, a world I know a whole lot about. Um, it, I, honestly, when I was a kid growing up in Santa Barbara, California in the 70s and even through the 80s, I just had a knee jerk, like deep hatred of anything that smacked of hippie anything. I think because I was surrounded by it my whole life. You know, I grew I mean? up in Berkeley. Not well. So, uh, you know yeah. what I'm you know what I'm talking like, about? Yeah, yeah, a little, yeah. little bit uh, to the north. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. So, um, so that was one of those uh, those things I I kind of had to let go of over the years. So um, anyway, J- Jason is a big fish fan. I don't really know fish's music m- much, 
Um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully at all. It's just not something I, I know. So he's been sending me songs to listen to and I've been going like, Oh fuck, these guys are, there's some shit there, man. Like there's yeah. some, there's some good stuff in that. Have you seen them live? No. Yeah. I got dragged <laughs> for, <laughs> uh, to my first fish concert and I would go again. I got to be honest. All they, right. They, yeah. There you go. They played their ass off. Like I bet. I bet they, they're, they're for real. They, they're, they can really do it. I'm not going to be, you know, a season ticket holder for the, the Madison Square Garden run during the holidays. But, you know, I, I will definitely go again. I tell you, that's that's a real thing. And I've talked about this before, too. Like my generation, at least where I was, um, the concept of jamming was so fucking illegal musically. Um, you just you nobody ever jammed. And, uh, and I actually, I love to just noodle and fuck around. And sometimes if I'm just playing with, with my band, I'll just, we'll, you know, in the rehearsal room, we'll just fuck around for a while. And, um, and I love that and letting things stretch out. And so, and you know, the, the one thing I will say is that, I guess my point to that is like, I, is I feel like that's something that I missed out on in my sort of formative musical years. But what we did do back then is every song would have like three, two minute guitar solos in it. So it's not, it wasn't jamming per se, but as a player, it made you have to learn how to fill up space. Cause it wasn't like nowadays where you get like two bars to do your thing or whatever. It was like, you know, in the eighties rock band, you're like, you were holding it down. It was like half the song was a guitar solo. You know what I mean? And when you're like 15 and try and you can't really play that's, you know, you just, you just did it by jumping in the deep end. Jam band thing I think is, just taking those chances. And I think, you know, a band, obviously, you know, the big ones, Fish and The Dead and uh, the, the like, you know, they, um, they're they so professional at it, you know. Um, but even them, you know, they'll admit there's nights where it might not happen the way they want. There's moments that, okay, this is, <laughs> we're not, you know, this is not maybe not our finest moment, but then there's other nights where it does happen. And I, I kind of feel like that's part of the fun of it. They let uh, the audience in on the process of discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting thing with being a player, like and being in a band, so much of it's in your head that it is a trip from night to night, just depending on what's what you're thinking and sort of where you're at emotionally um, it can have a massive impact on, on on whether or not it's a good show. Yeah. And sure. it's also different, you know, it's a different process to do a big rock show and present almost the same thing night after night, you know? Right. Which I do with Testament. You do with Foo Fighters. Sure. Yeah. You sort of have to, from night to night, you sort of have to find the things within that, that keep you yeah, entertained. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to have fun for the audience to have fun. Uh, I'll just ask uh, too uh, before we sign off. Any uh, do you have like a favorite piece of gear you're using now? Like, is there a current thing? Ooh, what's what's your rig? Current. I might as well talk a little bit of gear for. Well, I'll tell you that's. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what I would would go to. Is I just had Dave Friedman recently build me a new pedal board set. Now is he the Friedman of Friedman amps? Yes, yes. And I, I play his amps. I mean, my live setup for Foo Fighters is I'm A-being between uh, Friedman's and um, Vox AC30s. So those are the, so I've got like two, you know, clean channel and dirty channel on the on the Friedman. And then I set the Vox to kind of sit between them because like the, the clean on the Friedman's like crystal clean. And then the dirty I'm using like, you know, I'm driving it with the amp and not really putting any like overdrive pedals or anything in front of it. But with the Vox, I kind of put that in more of a jangly, dirty setting, and then sometimes I'll put like one of like a, one of those KTR clones in front of oh, it. Those clones, like clones are great. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thing. I have a clone clone, but I'm yes, pulled. that's the one that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, is it the red one? No, this one's uh, blank. A pedal builder made it for me. Oh, it's like literally a it's clone. It's literally okay, yeah. a clone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah. I'm told it's pretty close to the real thing. Nice. Well, it's funny with the Klon. Like everybody has a Klon pedal now. Like you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, in my solo thing, I use the um, the um, Tumnus, which is like a like a Wampler's version 
of it, you know, nice. which is great. Uh, but yeah, so with my Foo setup, uh, so Dave built me, I finally got all my pedals off stage and I'm using one of those RJM switchers. That's great. It's a lot easier. And I right? love it. It is so great. A lot easier. And I, and I program way less to think about. And I program all the songs into like song banks. So I can have like the intro, verse, chorus, bridge. So, you know, I have it all. So it's like literally one touch and five different things change, yeah. you know, which is great. I love it. Like a lot less tap dancing on stage. Nice. Nice. Yeah. 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 It's funny with Testament. Uh, we're all using these um, Kemper amps. Um, well, I, I, I was actually, I, I have been considering getting, you know, Kemper or Fractal or one of those things because, um, we do a lot of festivals, you know, and it's, and you never get a sound check and it's always like a throw right, and go so kind no. of situation. Yeah. And the thing that drives me crazy. And I, I mean, I'm, my preference is of course, to play through an actual amp. I just, you know, I love an amp. Nothing beats an amp. But, but. <laughs> for the for the touring professional, you know, for consistency, it, because I tell you what, in my solo thing, I have started using a Strymon Iridium instead of an actual amp. I'm not familiar Be because you know it's it's the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm playing in teeny little clubs and stuff. Uh, but like I'm also singing, so it's nice to not have stage volume, and it's just consistent. It's the exact same thing every night instead of like you know it is with like because in my solo thing I'm playing through little combos you know little old combos it, it's usually either a Princeton reverb or a deluxe reverb you know and it and it just varies so much from club to club uh, night to night that I I really have I I like having the the pretend amp up there it's it just makes your life easier you know yeah because like it, you know how it is as a player. If it doesn't sound good in your ears, it's you're fucked. You're not gonna get it. You know, like, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. You're the whole night. You're like it's like a fucking cat walking around with tape on its paw. Yeah, exactly. Sucks, you know. Yeah, it's funny because for instrumental music, I I wouldn't think about using the Kemper until recently. Uh, you know, I just did uh, an album. My next. Uh, trio album which will come out next year i i got the 65 blackface deluxe be beautiful fender deluxe and nice uh, yeah i have a couple of those i love they're them so good and there's just but i went that by the way is the ultimate honky tonk amp so oh, yeah. with you got that and you got that beautiful telly your your oh, next record's going going full twang yeah full twang i got i got a pair of those haven't done that in a while but um yeah yeah, with the Kemper, it's so funny. So I, I went recently saw Pat Metheny a few weeks ago. Cool. And uh, my friend is his tech. And I got the walkthrough of the rig. And I was in shock. <laughs> He's got the Kemper. He's got the same one I have. And then Pat came to start the soundtrack. And I, we got had a nice little chat. And uh, he told me uh, this this great uh, guitarist, uh, Lionel Lueke, uses one, and he heard it and got inspired. Now he's totally into it. And Pat is somebody I, you know, I think of for instrumental music as like you know a tone king. Yeah, if he signs off on it, then hey, if he can use it, okay, I'm I'm gonna revisit it for instrumental music. Um, totally, isn't that funny, man? When you see like somebody that that uh, who you respect doing something gear wise you're like well if he can do it yeah that's fine i can do it absolutely absolutely i haven't seen uh foos i would love to um one of these days i met dave i met dave at uh this cosmo fest the music store in toronto he was shadowing getty lee ah actually <laughs> nice hilarious yeah it was it was a surprise uh but we had a, a great hang and, uh, oh, nice. Well, are you, are you are you still up in the Bay Area? No, I've been in uh, Brooklyn, New York, for a long time. Oh, okay. I was going to say because we're playing outside lands up. Oh, up yeah, in, uh, that's right. San Francisco. That's right. One of these days. One of these days. I'm sure know. we'll we'll be back east at some point. It's got to happen. Yeah, and uh, I know we have. Uh, we must have some mutual musician friends in common. It's like oh, for sure, for sure. It's a small world. Super small. Yeah. Well, come out next time. You know, next time we're anywhere near you, hit me up. Yeah. 
For sure, man. This is a lot of fun. I, I, I confess I wasn't as familiar with, you, you know, the countryside and yeah, you know, right on. The, the solo stuff. And uh, Yeah, now you're, you're, you're going to be inspired to go down the country music rabbit hole. Oh, it's on. After this. Yeah. <laughs> and the upcoming uh, podcast episodes sound great. I'm super excited. Oh, right on. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. Crossing fingers for uh, Matias. Yes. Got to make it happen. We'll start an internet campaign to, you know, get the people to tell him to come on the show. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. Yeah. Compare explorers. Exactly. <laughs> His is better. <laughs> All right, buddy. Good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. All right. I'll see you out there. Take care. And there we have it. Episode 42 is in the books. Chris Shiflett, solo artist and Foo Fighter. I had a great time getting to know Chris. I hope you did as well. And to me, that's what it's all about. This is somebody that would have every right to be jaded. Your band is no stranger to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammys, the BMAs, SNL, as recently as 2020, hosted by Dave Chappelle. But that initial spark and enthusiasm for music is still there. Thank you, Chris. Moods and Modes is hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Executive producer is Kirsten Cluthy. Final edits and mixes by Tom Sullivan. Original music by Alex Skolnick. Right here, joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. Artwork by Mark Dowd. And distribution by Osiris Media. And as we wrap things up, I should let you know that I am now in Thailand. Greetings from the beautiful city of Bangkok. And I think I pulled this off despite being on tour. One thing that's different about an international tour like this is that uh, we're not on a bus. We're flying everywhere and we get to a hotel and the hotel rooms are quiet. Very important. Oh, I should mention as well, I have a great new amp modeler called the Quad Cortex. Some of you are probably familiar with it. I'm going to be writing about it, maybe even do an episode about it. But it is uh, an amp modeler. Uh, you know, Chris and I got into a little bit of a discussion about amp modelers. It's also an interface, so I was able to use it to put this episode together. Super cool. So big thank you to Neural DSP, who makes this device. And thank you for listening and your support. Please hit follow if you haven't. Tell your friends. And I will see you on another episode real soon. Take care and be safe. Hi, this is Henry K host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music, because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.